What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Ponko Chicken. Ponko Chicken, if you did not already know, is a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine. Uh, there are stores, if you're not familiar, um, all around the Atlanta area. Uh, there's one in Marietta now. There's one in Buckhead. There's one in Shambly. There's one in uh, Midtown. They're popping up everywhere because Ponko is awesome and uh, they're like family. So um, go check out Ponko if you have not already. It is the home of the award-winning Japanese American Chicken Tender just to brag on them a little bit more, they were Verizon Super Bowl Live top-selling vendor, three-peat Taste of Atlanta award winner, um, Midtown Alliance Best Taste winner. Just they won all the awards because Ponco is great and Ponco is delicious. So if you are in the Atlanta area and are looking to try something new and good and delicious, go check out Ponco Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. Uh, also. If you have not already, go check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com. It's where all of my episodes to all of my podcasts are, all of my writing that I do, uh, more information on me and who I am um, and why you should be listening to this podcast and reading my work and all of that great stuff. Go do that. Go to Chase Thomas Podcast today. If you're an Apple podcast listener, go ahead and leave me five stars and a rating and a review. That's great. I need it. Um, it helps the show continue to grow and all of that good stuff. Um, you can listen on SoundCloud, Spotify, like I said, Apple, Google Play, everywhere where you can get your podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast will be there. So go do that today. Um, all right. I think that's everything. We can get into today's episode. Uncle Darren, let's go. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate, I already hate it. I hate it. All right. Hello and welcome to a Tuesday night edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. William McFadden of the Atlanta Falcons is here. William, good evening. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Chase, man. Thank you so much for having me on. This is, uh, I'm looking forward to it. it. It should be fun. I made the, made the cut. I made the PR cut, so I'm feeling good. <laughs> of course you did. And of course, we, we uh, listen to a few of the stuff you did. You do great work, uh, super informative, and you're an Atlanta native like me. So I always like to uh, to chat to somebody who who grew up here in the four oh four. It was were you four oh four, six seven eight? What were you? I was six seven eight. Okay, but I mean it's Stone Mountain, so I'm not really sure how that. I never. I mean, as a lifelong Atlanta person, I never actually understood the difference between the four oh four, six seven eight because there were people with both and yeah and everything else. So exactly. I don't actually know how to break it up. Yeah, it's not like an ITP OTP kind of thing, which would make no. sense. But but yeah, no, you're right. It's it's all over the place. But anyway, those are the two. So always happy to. To chat with somebody who's uh, who grew up here in Atlanta. Where are you from? Uh, I'm from Marietta, actually. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so not too far. Back in football this year. Uh, I think that was last year. Uh, I thought they just won state. The dude who's going to Tennessee was that not him, Bailey? Mm, I don't know, man. Honestly, I'm I'm so locked in the NFL during the season. So my alma mater, we lost. And well, I didn't. I didn't go to Marietta. I just grew up oh, okay. in Marietta. There's so many schools mm. in, in Marietta. There were five. So I went to Pope High School, but there are five. Okay. Five high schools within like a five mile radius of Pope. I mean, it's, it is such a congested, uh, populous area over there. But, mm. but yeah, no, it's great. It's booming. <laughs> Dumber 2 um, being filmed over there, the Marietta Square. Yep. I seem to recall. Good, uh, good sight. Um, I haven't been to Marietta in forever. I, I never have had any reason to go over there, but I've always been um, just the 75. I have uh, PTSD from doing traffic on 75 and going that direction, crossing uh, multiple interstates to get to that area. Um, and people who are not familiar with Atlanta at all are just like, what in the world are these two talking about right now? Because I have no recollection or understanding about anything Atlanta, um, like any green. Well, everybody can relate Atlanta to traffic. Stuff. So yes, <laughs> that's all we're trying to say, <laughs> folks. Is we actually grew up on very different sides of the Atlanta spectrum, um, Stone Mountain and Marietta. Not exactly the 
the same, I would I would say. But um, both Atlanta. There you go. Um, I want to talk today because the Falcons had a very weird season. And when I think about just how much I was annoyed about this season, it's not even that they didn't make the playoffs. It's that the NFL is so different and football is so different where if you get off to a start like the Falcons did, you're just – you. it's just rough because – you know that like no matter what they do in the second half it's like it's hard to watch you're like we're already eliminated midway through and you just football is just different because teams can just go on these runs like the titans did and just come back from nothing like you can start three and six i mean we know the stats of if you start i think it's what like two and seven or two and six that only a handful of teams have ever made the playoffs coming back from that Mm -hmm. but you don't want to get that bad (laughs) and it's not like it was a rebuilding year so you didn't go into 2019 expecting the falcons to be bad we expected kind of about where their final record ended up somewhere like give or take a few breaks and injury luck um nine wins ten wins eight wins seven wins that all seem feasible but you didn't think that it was going to be as difficult as it was just to get to where they were um now that it's been a little bit what happened to the atlanta falcons in 2019 in your opinion yeah no i mean i, I think you framed it in a in a really smart way you know the most optimistic among fans probably thought seven and nine was the floor for this team, you know, going into the year, given that everybody on the defense was supposed to be back and healthy. And for the most part, you know, was obviously the Keanu Neal injury um, was really brutal. It was really tough to see. And it, and it meant a lot, but you know, going into the year confident, they, they'd won their final preseason game, kind of finally got that preseason monkey off their back. And then really just got punched right out of the gate on the road against Minnesota. And so, you know, right away it's, well, maybe this year is going to be something. And then you you come away from week one with a little bit of a bitter taste in your mouth. But in week two, you bounce right back uh, on Sunday night football with a thrilling last second win against Philadelphia. So maybe, you know, again, there's that hope. It's like, all right, well, this is maybe the team that we thought it was going to be finally, you know, again, got another monkey off your back in beating Philadelphia. And then, you know, it, it was crazy. It was just kind of every week, when is it going to stop? And, and you're right. It, it's really tough to be out of it early. And, you know, I know internally there was never, at least from the players and coaches standpoint, they could never afford to look at it that way. You know, they, they had to look at it one week at a time, one game at a time. And in each of these games, it kind of seemed to be a little bit of a different thing that crept up to bite them. You know, early on in the season, it was penalties. There were a ton of penalties in a lot of their losses. And Dan Quinn took steps to get that corrected. He increased the number of referees at practice um, and brought in a full crew of referees. And pretty much, you know, from that point on, you know, a couple of weeks after those refs were in a practice, the penalties stopped being the issue. But then it became defensive breakdowns. And it became turnovers. And then against, you know, Arizona, it was, both the defensive breakdowns and then a missed extra point from Matt Bryant, which you never see. And so it was all of these weird things, but at the end of the day, all that mattered was that it was another L. And when you are, are kind of one in seven, you're right. It's, it's so much tougher to go that way than it would be to, let's say, go lose week one, win week two, lose week three, win week four and five, then maybe lose week six, seven, and eight. And you're at the bye week and you're, you're kind of, still have a losing record, but like you said, you feel maybe there's a second half of the year run. And then maybe if you continue to alternate, like it's just such a weird feeling for the year and covering the team. I, you know, I felt it too. It was, it's it just kind of going into the bye week. It, there, nobody really knew what was, what was going wrong. But then when you saw the corrections and the changes that were made during the second half of the season, you started to see the team that we all fought was going to, you know, be on television, be in the, in the stadium, be on view for everybody entering the year. And, you know, you give credit to the coaches for making those corrections. The hope now, obviously, is that those corrections will be sustainable and carry over into 2020 and that, you know, moving Raheem Morris over to the defensive side of the ball, maybe figuring out which players fit into which roles best, you know, that's sustainable. So, I think that's my main thought looking back at the year was you're right. It was, it was just so weird. Um, obviously ending the year six and two with some really big wins kind of 
helps put a solve on on the wounds, but you know, they beat the I know Super Bowl team in the NFC. Really <laughs> it's, just, it was, it's the dumbest season when so you look weird. back at the record and who they lost to. Like the Monday night game, or was it Sunday or Monday? Um, I think it was Sunday with the Eagles and just yep. how that ended. And like that was one of my favorite games ever. And you're mm-hmm. coming out of that like, oh, this is going to be fine. They're going to fix the season. Like it's, yeah. the sky isn't falling. And then you're like, nope, the sky was definitely falling. And, and that even, was an outlier. Even when the sky was falling, then people could look back at that game and say, well, you know, if Nelson Aguilar doesn't drop that, that pass, then that's another loss. You know, if people yeah. start looking at, at the positives as negatives and it's it just, yeah, you get in such a weird mindset, but then yeah, to come out of the bye week and go, the fact that they beat New Orleans on the road is, mm-hmm. is like staggering. And, and again, it was like, well, that's the, that's the team we expected. And then to follow that up with an even more impressive, you know, from a performance standpoint, win on the road against Carolina with four turnovers, you know, playing sound football, getting sacks. I mean, so again, if you're looking for reasons to be optimistic heading into into next season, the second half of the year is is it. It they finally defensively, this team, for as much as the offense can be thrilling and exhilarating at times, this team really plays at its best when the defense is setting the tone. And I think that's what Dan Quinn has always looked for with this team. You know, it's so tough to replicate the 2016 you're just going to outscore everybody because there were so many of those games you know you think back to the the green bay game during the regular season when muhammad knew had to catch that last second touchdown pass to win that game otherwise you're losing back-to-back games you know against san diego and green bay and people are feeling really weird about that team too so when defense is leading the way for the falcons under jane quinn this team really does feel complete but i know a lot of fans are going to say well, how do we know that it's going to continue? And, and quite frankly, we're asking ourselves the, the same question, um, those who cover the team. And the answer is it's, it's up to the coaching staff. It's up to the players to convince us that they can start off strong. When you were covering the team midseason this year, what did you see? Did you see the second half change coming based on what they did, um, what adjustments they made? Was there any adjustment in particular that you were like, okay, this is something to monitor, this is something that um, could change the trajectory of their team. And also just thinking about like how hard it is in football to come back knowing that you're basically, your postseason dreams are over, Super Bowl stuff, all that kind of stuff, it's out the window. And to keep playing hard and keep playing for this group of guys, were you surprised they all kind of rallied and were able to just talk themselves into going out strong and beating good teams like the Niners and Saints in the second half? Or did this always seem like a, a possibility with the makeup of this team and this coaching staff? Yeah, so to answer the first part of your question, um, you know, they made three coaching changes kind of over the bye week, most notable of which was Raheem Morris going from coaching the wide receivers to coaching the secondary. You know, and, and Coach Morris has a defensive background. He's coached defensive backs for most of his NFL career, obviously, you know, got the, the job in Tampa Bay based on his defensive expertise. But what being up close with, with uh, Coach Morris and what he has that's so kind of unique to him is he's so fiery. And I, I know that's a little bit overused in, in the NFL term, but like he really truly is like he, he knows how to speak to the players in a way that's genuine. He can, he can joke with them, but he can also, you know, really kind of dig into them a little bit and, and motivate them in a way that doesn't tear them down, but is kind of like, man, come on. I know you can do better than that. Like you've got more on that. You, and he's such a, he had such a unique perspective that I think he brought to the secondary having coached wide receivers and working on that side of the ball and learning, okay, when a receiver comes up and he's running and he's starting to kind of break even with you and he's maybe going to do this, here's how you can adjust and remain in either front of him or keep your advantage as a defender. And I think the ability to communicate that well, which he does very well, he's a great communicator being able to communicate that with, with what is still kind of a young secondary, at least at the cornerback position, with guys like Kendall Sheffield and Isaiah Oliver, I think that meant a lot to them. So his presence on the defensive side of the ball, and then obviously the play calling with uh, Jeff Olbert calling the first and second down plays, and then Morris calling the third down plays in, in the red zone. Being able to specialize in those two areas and really focus on building game plans, you know, not with too much on their plate, just 
okay, I'm going to work on the first and second down. You've got third down the red zone. And, and really diving in and knowing, like, the back of their hand, here's the play call that works here. Here are the play calls the players are comfortable with. I think if we're looking at what changed during the bye week, that had a huge effect. And so he really did deserve and earn to get this defensive coordinator job after the season. Now, the second part of your question, it didn't surprise me that this locker room kept fighting. You know, it's so tough for as much as fans and, and things like that. And, and hey, I, like, I understand when you're sitting there at one and seven and you're, you're beginning to kind of look at the draft and you're beginning to kind of say, oh, hey, this Chase Young guy, you know, he, he looks like he could be pretty good. When you look good in, uh, in red and black, maybe we shouldn't win too many more games down the stretch. You know, maybe we should get a top three pick. That might be nice. I totally understand that mentality. That's a really, really tough sell to Julio Jones. That's a really tough sell to Matt Ryan, who are sitting here saying, you know, I'm not going to be able to play this game forever. You're telling me that I now have to waste the full season? No, I'm not doing that. And, and that was the message in the locker room. Those guys have a ton of pride. They're well-respected. When Julio Jones is standing up in the locker room after a game and basically saying, guys, it's on us. The coaches are giving us the right information. They're putting us in the right spot. We have to take ownership of this, and we've got to get it corrected. That resonates. You know, and you've got Grady Jarrett emerging as a leader, both on and off the field. The makeup of this locker room was the right makeup to bounce back from something like this. And I think if you juxtapose this with something that kind of happened in like Cleveland, where you started seeing people pointing the finger, you started seeing people, you know, maybe turning around and looking at the coach, things like that, that never for a second happened here in this locker room. You know, and, and that is a credit to how hard these players will fight for Dan Quinn. You know, Ricardo Allen has told me many times that that he, this coaching staff that he's got, they really do put the players in the best position. And, you know, whatever happened during the first eight weeks of the season on the field, you know, it, they, the players took a lot of accountability for that. Um, so I think they did, once they started, once the voices and maybe the coaching rooms changed a little bit, you know, and, and they started having somebody who could communicate to them in a way that really best reached them, the players were totally all in and they were never going to be rolling over this season. So it's over. They came back. They got seven wins. They have a mid-round pick. We'll see what they do with that. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's a little early to figure out what they're going to do with that pick. I, I have no idea. I've read different mock drafts and seeing like a secondary guy, like the Alabama dude. McKinney, oh, McKinney, uh, yeah. Yeah. Which I wouldn't hate. Um, would not hate just looking at the, the safety situation in Atlanta year and year out with the injury concerns and everything else. And I, I, I don't think you could really be upset about going corner. Um, pass rush is always an option with Vic Beasley now uh, being gone. Um, type McKinley's questions. Great. Jarrett being awesome, which, Another unsung <laughs> hero. Uh, he got paid and was still awesome. So yes. shout out to Grady Jarrett for um, keeping it going. But we'll have to see what happens there. So if you're Thomas Dimitrov or what you've gathered from Thomas Dimitrov post-2019, what do you think he's looking at to ensure that they do not get off into a 1-7 hole and really end their season before it gets started? Um, well, you know what Thomas would, would say is, that right now they're really digging into everything. <laughs> they weigh free agency versus the drafts as far as, you know, the strengths of, of both uh, groups of players. Um, obviously we know where they stand with the salary cap. You know, it's been well reported. Uh, it's a little strong to say that they're in salary cap hell, um, but they certainly do have work to do in that area. And, and he's been upfront about that saying they need to get creative. Um, you know, in, in the past days, They've worked hard to re-sign guys who've rightfully earned contracts. Guys like Deion Jones and Grady Jarrett have proven on the field that they are worthy of, of being here. But there are some tough decisions that, that need to be made. Obviously, the team has already stated, um, you know, I wrote the story, that they do not plan to, you know, seek uh, negotiations with, with 50 this offseason. So, you know, presumably, unless something major changes in, in that area, he will be gone. Um and then other guys like Austin Hooper, Jack Crawford, um, Adrian Claiborne, things like that are all free agents. So there will be decisions that, that have to be made. Um, right now, I, I'm not sure which way the team is leaning one way or the other on those. I'm, I assume we'll probably figure out where they stand over the coming weeks um, 
in that regard, but it's, it's a little, it's probably a stretch to say that they're going to be heavy players in free agency. Um, that could change if they're able to free up some, some cap space, but given the way that the markets have gone and, and that the price tags have gone up on a lot of these guys, it's, it's going to be tough to land many, if, if any, like super impact guys. Um, now that's not to say that they can't, it, it'll just really require some creativity. As Thomas says, and then you're looking at the draft and they've got three picks in the first two rounds, uh, which is a great place to start, you know, trading and getting new England second round pick. It's turning out to, to work like a really, really solid trade um, at this point. And so that gives you some flexibility when we know that Thomas is, is always open to making moves and moving around the draft board. Um, and I've done a little bit of, of research into this year's draft class. I'm going to do a little bit more when I've got some downtime, you know, in the hotel room next week while I'm in Indy for the combine, but it's not the deepest edge rusher class. It's certainly not like last year where, you know, you had guys like Brian Burns and Montez Sweat and, you know, Nick Bosa and all these guys, you know, right enough Chase Young. I know AJ Epinesa is somebody that, you know, a lot of mock drafts have linked to the Falcons, he's not a speed guy. He's much more of a, of a power guy, but maybe he's a guy that can slide, you know, inside and outside, um, which could help with some versatility on the defensive line. I know Clavon Chason is another guy that they like, but from who I, I hate that idea though, because I, every time I look at his <laughs> uh, player, like rate, like just how they describe him, I'm like, no hard pass. I, I don't like it. I swear. Yeah. Cause if I hear one more Falcons, uh, defensive edge rusher possibility of like, he's long, athletic yeah. with big time potential had enough of that i think i'm good <laughs> i never need any more ed rushers with big time potential who are pretty athletic i think i'm good well yeah okay so you want the you want the low ceiling with uh not even low ceiling, minimal ath- minimal athleticism that's that's the guy that you want chase minimal athlete low ceiling i guy. just want someone who actually <laughs> wins like the pff wins stuff that yeah. i love going through like i just want someone who wins a lot like right. i don't want someone who's just like if things hit right like this yes. Dion Jordan man if we bring him in I think we might be the team that figures out how to make right. Dion Jordan Jadavion Clowney yeah you know I really just have yeah. Jadavion Clowney he's available 26 <laughs> go do it give me some but give me a defensive it give me John Abraham I guess is what I'm saying you know who I miss John Abraham John Abraham was great and he was great forever and I you cannot convince me that John Abraham would not be better than Tack McKinley and Vic Beasley in 2020 you can't do it I mean, I, I I don't think I'm going out on too far of a limb to say that Thomas Dimitrov would probably also like vintage John Abraham as a roster. <laughs> um, but so so then you know you're you're kind of looking at a guy like AJ Epinesa who was productive in college, maybe doesn't have maybe is a much higher floor type of guy. You know, proven production, probably an eight to ten sack guy from what I've read. Again, I haven't watched film on him. I usually like to try to watch film on these guys, so I'm able to formulate my own opinion on them and not just kind of parrot what I've read. And I, I recommend, I think that's a useful exercise for a lot of people. Um, just to, if, if you just lay eyes on, on a guy and can, can formulate your own thoughts, you know, then you've got a leg to stand on when you're talking about them. Um, from who I've, people I've talked to, you know, people who have watched these guys, draft guys who, who kind of do this stuff year round. Um, I talked to a few of them at the senior bowl, it, they really like it's such a deep wide receiver class. It's it's a really deep and good uh, defensive back class. It's a really good offensive tackle class in the first round, um, and so the Falcons could be in an interesting situation. We always know the teams like to trade up for quarterback. So if if there's a little bit of a run, if there's maybe on offensive tackles or wide receivers in front of the Falcons and some of these guys, some of these corners maybe, you know, some of the top like linebackers or, or maybe there are some top offensive tackles who are there at 16. And, and if Atlanta feels that they've got a guy who could slide inside a guard, you know, maybe we see him pull a trigger and try to solidify the offensive line a little bit more. I know that might cause a mutiny. Um, I, I think right now it's if I, I mean, to, I don't. I would not be opposed to a center like yeah. Alex Max. Decline and his age scare me. Like he was awesome. Mm-hmm. He was not terrible. He he actually his PFF numbers weren't great, especially to start the season. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to consider who he was playing next to for most of the year, though, with Chris Lindstrom True. out and and them kind yeah. of rotating guard again. It's it's really tough for a center to be there. You know, kind of with two 
newer guys, both, you know, both, uh, Jamon Brown and, and Carpenter on the other side were, were new to the system. Um, but, but your point is taken, you know, Alex Mack is not going to play this game forever. Um, so yeah, so start looking for the next guy there because I think you've invested mm-hmm. so much on the right side of the line. Jake Matthews is just a staple yeah. left guard, not really as worried. But like, if you want to go guard, I would not hate them adding more offensive line talent. I think anyone who would be upset about them taking a flyer on someone in the first round if it's an offensive lineman just because they took two last year um, makes no sense to me because yeah. um, keeping Matt Ryan upright for the remainder of his prime is yeah. So, uh, like, I'm not going to be annoyed at them over-investing. I'm not going to be annoyed at them going the Cowboys route of just keep taking guys and keep taking dudes who can help. Like, taking the Isaiah wins. Like, if you're the Pats, just keep taking offensive linemen. Um, I, I do not hate that idea. Uh, I do think the biggest thing – I think the only thing that would actually annoy Falcons fans, maybe it's two picks. It would be either a running back, which I think has zero chance of happening, or – uh, receiver like if they take an Alabama receiver I think most Alabama like if it's rugs or something I think people might just lose their absolute mind I think that's a possibility I, I think I, I would feel safe right now in saying that I don't think you're going to see Jerry Judy uh, be drafted at number 16 um, yeah I feel good about it too <laughs> but I and I, I probably would bet that they go defensive side of the ball um, you know, again, right now, the Falcons change, free agency changes so much um, with all of this stuff. Uh, but as it seems, probably defensive side of the ball. Now, whether that's uh, a pass rusher, if they really truly believe somebody, you know, here, like you said, is not a project that can come in and make an impact, then by all means, they probably should and, and will pull the trigger on a guy like that because they do need to find a way to pressure on the quarterback at a more consistent clip and everybody looks at sacks sacks do matter but you know Dan Quinn has always been adamant that pressure is also as impactful you know what it does is it gets a guy off his rhythm it gets a guy hurrying up because while sacks while sacks are great what what DQ really looks for and what NFL teams what really makes an impact is turnovers if you can get a sack fumble that's an A plus if you can force pressure on a quarterback to throw a bad pass and get an interception, that's an A plus, you know, a sack is an A because the offense still maintains possession. So that's why when you hear him talk about pressure, it's not just, well, you know, we almost got to the quarterback. We got him off his rhythm. It was an incomplete pass. Yeah, that's a, that's good. But what he's really looking for is that poor throw that then creates a turnover and all of a sudden the game is flipped. Um, so just a little inside note for, for fans there that get all crazy when people just talk about pressure on the quarterback is important too. It really is. But that being said, they, they need to find a way to increase their sack totals. Um, but like you said, corner, corner or safety, not, you can never have too many defensive backs in today's NFL. You know, when you watch, well, yeah. And also, I mean, it's time to get bleedy Ray Wilson, the max as a, (laughs) lifelong fan of bleedy ray wilson who also follows me on twitter um his pff numbers and just watching the games i'm like love this dude like i remember him out of tennessee and i, I just loved his name anyway but like he is the new brian pool and uh i need him to be protected at all costs so do what you have to do William, but um i need to ensure that he is the nickel corner um for the falcons for the next five years that's all i ask bleedy okay i don't i don't know love if he uh, if he fits the the mold of a nickel corner but He's a great veteran. Whatever uh, he needs to do, dime corner, zone two. If we have to go back to the Tampa two, don't (laughs) care. Got to keep Bleedy Ray Wilson on this roster. Um, He was good down the stretch. I like him. For sure. Um, He's super, super reliable and dependable. Uh, Did you catch, I'm sure you did, the the national championship game this year, college football. So when you watch a game like that and you see at one point three defensive linemen, two linebackers, and then six defensive backs on the field for drives at a time full drives that when as college offenses come to the nfl it's it's my belief that we're going to see defenses start to adjust to to uh cover that and contain that and when when guys like brent venables and you know uh, the college the top college defensive minds are saying okay we need to get as many corners and athletes and safeties and defensive backs and do two can just cover whether that be a fast athletic linebacker like deon jones or if it's bringing in a sixth defensive back onto the field, just to counter these 
these passing offense or these running backs in the flats, things like that. I think we're going to maybe start seeing the NFL go that way, almost like positionless secondary. And that's what, that's what I mean when I say you can never have too many defensive backs right now on a roster, especially with a guy like Joe Brady coming to Carolina. I mean, he masterminded that uh, much of that LSU offense. And so it, it's going to get here, I think, quicker than, than we think it will. I think so, too. Um, what is the impact of Mike Malarkey's retirement? Mike Malarkey, I mean, he... So in his first year with the team, obviously, it was Austin Hooper's best year, despite you know missing a few games. Um, I think his, his experience having played the position can't be understated. Uh, he was able to communicate these guys to these guys from, you know, real life experience. And, you know, we saw guys like Jaden Graham also start to develop later in the year. When I look at the tight end position though, on this, uh, this team, I really do think about Dirk Cutter's scheme. He's always been a, a guy who's been able to get production out of the tight end position. Um, so whether or not I, Mike, Mike's departure is obviously, going to be a big one. I don't think it's going to be devastating by any means. Um, yeah, it, it remains to be seen what they do with the tight end position. Obviously, Austin is a free agent. Um, we don't know whether or not he'll be back next year. Uh, obviously, his production speaks for itself. He's been now at the Pro Bowl twice. Uh, this year as an alternate, and last year legitimately deserving so. And if he's been healthy for a full season, could have been there again legitimately um so if if he does i'm kind of mad at him <laughs> i'm kind of mad at him i'm just gonna go ahead and tell you like Why he's that? close enough where i consider paying him crazy money but he's also not quite there where i'm like are we sure we can't get delaney walker somewhere are we sure we can't get uh a fill-in for a couple of years do we do we have to spread our resources at the tight end position when we have ridley and julio and mm-hmm. i mean my favorite on the offense russell gage i'm a big russell gage guy big gage guy and uh, okay. a big gage guy big gage guy <laughs> um he had some moments this year i, I just want to field. i think going four wide with him hardy uh julio and ridley i i very much enjoy it um i don't know i would be very hesitant to pay hooper because he's not a kelsey or a kittle or yep. a gronk or anybody like that but he's right below them so it's like i don't know it's very tough i don't envy dimitrov's situation with hooper because you're like he is an a minus but he's not enough where it's like we have to target him 17 times a game and he's going to get nine catches for 158 yards like the chiefs and the 49ers just over target their tight ends because they can get open they're just always uh just uncomfortable i don't think hooper's there but i think he's close enough where you consider it it's and you know matt ryan loves him and yeah. if you go through the targets the past couple of years like matt ryan loves finding austin hooper and, and trust him and everything else it's just i i'm mad at him because it's complicated i wish <laughs> it, it was straightforward like whatever uh that one was easy was ready to move on from that that's not a tough one yeah you were tired of seeing those wheel route wheel route touchdowns from you gotta set up with that um no so the case the case for austin hooper incredibly young still i mean people don't don't realize this i I think he's he's either 25 or he's 24 and for somebody who's already he's already been in the league for four seasons i mean he's basically the same age as galvin ridley so he's got an incredible amount of experience for somebody who's really just entering his prime but like you said he's not he's not the type of athlete as far as just somebody who's going to maybe beat defenders down the field like a you know Travis Kelsey or George Kittle but what he does really really well is he's got that incredible chemistry with Matt Ryan and he's he's starting to develop his body like a basketball player and what I mean by that is understanding the leverage opportunities that he has on defenders when he's running routes so he's able to box out guys he's able to use his body to shield defenders and give Matt a clear throwing lane and, you know, as they've worked over time to develop that chemistry, that's really paid off. Another tight end who, you know, famously played that way is Tony Gonzalez. So it's not, I don't think it's a coincidence that the best tight end connections that Matt Ryan has had have been those basketball type of, you know, I'm going to get this defender on my back hip. I'm going to sit down in the zone. I'm going to flash my hands and you're going to know that I'm going to be right here if you need me. And Austin became that type of player and he, 
he, what he does have is that benefit of still being young enough to really, he does have enough athleticism to, you know, if everybody clears out, he's able to run that shallow route, catch the ball. He loves to hurdle. That dude gets up in the air as much as anybody in the league. Um, but yeah, so those are, those are the, the two sides of it. You know, I get what you're saying it is, is that somebody who is the needs to be paid on an offense where you've already invested so many, so much money on this offense. And you're looking at a defense that, you know, maybe needs a few extra pieces. That's the decision that I'm glad I don't have to make. Cause like you said, I don't really envy the front office uh, having to make that decision because there are compelling cases on both sides. Yeah, um, my gut's telling me the Patriots are just going to sign him. <laughs> that is, my gut is like Tom Brady is like, no, I, um, uh, I, I think I would rather just have uh, Austin Hooper. That's like priority number one. Like, I would not be surprised if that's like part of his. his Over time, Bill Belichick's like, uh, going to slowly just acquire part of the Falcons' offensive receiving core. He's yeah. going to be like, Mohamed Snow, here you go. Next year, Justin Hardy, come on over. <laughs> Justin Hardy, the sleeping giant in New England. I've always said it, folks. He always has had the making of the next Troy Brown. There you um, go. What was the biggest change for you that you saw from Steve Sarkeesian to Dirk Cutter? So this is something that I've, you know, tried to think a lot about this year. And as much as yeah, entering the off season, and I do believe this to be somewhat true because you build a team the personnel that you put in, you do try to match it to the scheme. So when Kyle Shanahan was here, he obviously runs that outside zone, West coast offense, a lot of bootleg, a lot of movement. You want to get your offensive line on the move. You want to have the defense flowing with them. And then you want your offensive line to create enough of a cutback lane by shielding off, getting some defenders to overrun the play. And then you wall them off. And what, you know, Tevin Coleman and Devontae Freeman are so good at, is that one cut upfield, boom, go. And so when you acquire personnel, when you acquire offensive linemen, guys like Alex Mack, they need to be good on the move. And sometimes that means they're a little bit lighter. They may not have the power to take an, a guy like Indomitian Sue, you know, right off the block and just drive him backwards like a power running scheme. But what you lose in that, you make up for in that speed agility. You can get guys pulling, you can get them in open spaces, lead blockers, stuff like that. So that's why it's tough to find a team, you know, succeed when they go from one scheme completely to the other. So the Falcons have tried to maintain continuity with their schemes. Steve Sarkeesian ran a similar version of that outside zone West coast offense that Kyle Shanahan ran. So he was adjusting a little bit to what was already in place. Dirk obviously has much more experience as an NFL play caller, and he's kind of developed his own offense over the years. And so they have always maintained that this was still going to be the Falcons offense, but you know, personally just me watching this on the field, I could see more dirt cutter elements to it than I did under Steve Sarkeesian. Um, and what I mean by that is you're going to see more screenplay. We saw a lot of screens. Dirk has always maintained that he views screen passes as an extension of the run game. And so everybody, you know, we're sitting here and, and people will say, you know, why aren't they running the ball? Why aren't they sticking to the run and things like that? But if, if they're going to run the ball maybe 19 times and throw five or six screen passes to Dirk, he's going to look at that as kind of similar to 24 runs or 25 runs because a screen pass to him is really just a longer handoff. You know, and, and there are a lot of coordinators that, that think that way as well, as, you know, get the ball to a guy in space as creatively as possible. And sometimes that's not just turning around and handing the ball to a runner. Sometimes that is, you know, utilizing a little trickery or getting it to Austin Hooper as a tight end screen. And so the other part of that is that they do, I, Austin Hooper said this before the year, and I hope that I'm getting this correct, but it went from a depth-based to a steps-based uh, passing attack, which means that the route timing was a little bit different. It wasn't, you know, be at 12 yards and be here, at by the time Matt hits his last drop, it's okay. One, two, three, four. Now I'm breaking on my fourth step, you know, to, to cut my route. And that's when Matt's throwing the ball. So there was a little bit of adjustment from the receiver standpoint and the quarterback timing standpoint. That's a dirt thing. You know, that's his offense. It's a little bit of the air Coriel, you know, that's, that's where it's derived from. Um, obviously the 
tight end position got utilized a little bit more. There's a little bit of a longer downfield developing routes, a little bit of a deeper drop back, not so much bootlegs, rollouts, getting guys on the move. So I think that's why it appeared that Matt Ryan was, you know, under pressure a little bit more this season was because he was taking, you know, some deeper drops. That's, that's what these routes call for. So I wonder, I'm curious to see how this continues to evolve um, in year two. Obviously Matt Ryan has familiarity with Dirk Cutter from uh, Dirk's first stint in Atlanta with Falcons. Julio does too, but for some of these guys, especially these linemen, um, some of the other receivers, I, I think there was a little bit of an adjustment period. I do think that, you know, sticking with Dirk and opting for that continuity after a year in which you overturned all three coordinator positions, probably a good call. You know, if this is, if you're looking to build on the momentum that was seized at the end of last season, then you stick for that continuity. You know, even Raheem Morris, not really a big change. You know, he was an in-house guy and everyone's comfortable with him. He's been here. So while there was one coordinator change, it, it wasn't even really a big coordinator change. So looking at Dirk's offense, I, I'm very curious to see how they perform in year two, I guess is, is the best answer that I can give you. But I did notice, I did notice some similarities. And I, I wonder if those changes will be reflected in the personnel moves that the team makes this offseason. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I... I'm just as curious as you are when it comes to what this offense continues to just kind of change and look like. I mean, mm-hmm. we're going to see what happens with Hooper. We're going to see what happens with the rest of the receiving core. We're going to see um, what happens when the offensive line has a more experience on their belt. Just having Lindstrom and McGarity not be rookies anymore matters. Yep. Um, and they both got better. Having, yeah. Yeah. So that's a big thing to watch and think about going into um, 2020. But I think um, – the most interesting to me is what they do with Freeman, right? Mm-hmm. Like everything else seems pretty like it's going to be the same. We'll have to see what happens, how they respond with Hooper. But what is your gut telling you? Do you think uh, Devonte Freeman is an Atlanta Falcon in 2020? Um, you know, it's, I, I, we have all seen those reports, I guess that the team is, is currently mulling over, you know, what, what do they want to do with Devonte And, He's been so, you know, those, those 2015 and 2016 seasons weren't, weren't a fluke. Um, you know, he's, when he's on his game, he's incredibly shifty. He's, there's not really, maybe Ito, but there's not really a running back like him on this roster. And so I think, like I just said with, with Dirk, it kind of probably comes down to a personnel and scheme fit decision. Um with that. And obviously, you know, the cap comes into it as well. They can save a little bit of money uh, in the cap if, if they do decide to move on um, from Devonte. And I, I have no idea if they will or not, but he, so I, I think it'll, I think it will depend on whether or not they believe he's the best type of back for the system that they want to run. And they've gone a little bit more towards inside zone as opposed to the outside zone that they typically ran under Kyle and, and Sark. And I mean, selfishly, I'm a little frustrated or upset with that because I love, uh, you know, I went to the university of Georgia. So every Saturday when I was watching Georgia games and I'm watching Deandre Swift leave dudes literally on the turf, clutching their ankles because he has the sickest upfield one cut move that I've seen in a long, long time. I'm just sitting there being like, man, damn, I want this dude in Atlanta and I want him in this outside zone scheme. I don't know if he's now the best fit. And so that's a little selfish on my part because I want to see him continue to play for, you know, a local team. Um, and, and so I think that's kind of that same decision that you find yourself with Devontae is he's so good at, at that upfield cut. When you get him in space, he can make dudes miss left and right. Is he able to get those really tough yards on inside zone plays. Is that where he's best utilized? And that's one of an answer for you. The answer is no. (laughs) He's one of the toughest Uh, runners. It's a Tevin Coleman special. Do you remember the halfback dives two years ago with Kevin, Tevin Coleman where the TR gains, it was one of my favorite Mm -hmm. things in my notes. If you go through my 2018 Falcons notes, there are so many games. The Pittsburgh Steelers game stands out to me, but like the, the halfback, just dive on yep. second and eight. I just, I died every time I saw it coming that. And then the Calvin Ridley <laughs> end around, I was just like, this has worked exactly negative seven times um, 
this season. Why are we doing this? Tevin Coleman does not need to be running the ball up the middle. This is awful. I hated all of this. Those were my two biggest start complaints was there you go. plays. Um, but Devontae Freeman's the yeah. same way, where it's like he's a wrecking ball, and I understand that aspect of it, but uh, he's, an, he's a space person. That's why he was so good in Shanahan's scheme. Right. He, and I also don't made... really know who the right guy is. Is it Ito Smith just because he's totally fine with just running up the middle and just getting pounded over and over again? Maybe that's what the answer is. <laughs> so, like, in, in when everything becomes close quarters, that's when vision becomes the most important thing. And what's really, really interesting, one of the kind of underrated, interesting, notable developments that happened last season was the use of uh, Quadri Allison basically becoming the team's goal line running back. I mean, he had the most rushing touchdowns of anybody on the team last year, and he only carried the ball 22 times. He had four touchdowns. So his usage, and I asked Dan Quinn about that one time after, after a game, it's basically like, what do you see in, in Quadri to trust him so much at the goal line because traditionally you know as you get closer to the goal line you give it to the running back that you trust the most because you don't want anything any risk with the football you want to make sure that that thing is taken care of first and foremost and basically he said his vision down at the goal line in close quarters is just incredible so you know maybe maybe it's somebody like that i mean maybe our answer running back is already on the roster that's not to say that quadri is gonna you know all of a sudden overtake anybody on the, on the depth chart, but it's things like that, that you fans or or even us may not be privy to decision-making and intangibles that we don't, that are so non-obvious that coaches can see in practice that could end up making the decision. You know, Edo, I think has really good interior vision. I think Brian Hill runs really, really hard. Um, I don't know if that equates to, long-term success he's definitely had success when been given the opportunity um and he you can he's definitely the the running back when the ball's in his hands you notice it the most because he does kind of hit that downfield burst in the same way that tevin could when he found the corner and you could just kind of tell that he hit that extra gear i do think brian has that not that not necessarily the extra gear but just he, you can tell that that dude is running with full head of steam. Um, whereas Ito and Devante would always seem like they were ready to make the next lateral cut. You know, with Brian, it's like, I'm just going to run over you or I'm just going to get tackled. Uh, so the running back position is, is very, very interesting. And it won't surprise me because this is a deeper running back class. You know, guys like Clyde Edward Hilaire or Cam Akers, it could be there in with maybe their second pick in the second round, you know, maybe you uh, pick in the third round. That's probably where the best value is. Like you said, you'd be upset if they took one in the first round. I think the way that the game is going, that's probably unlikely. And I don't know if there is a Saquon Barkley or Ezekiel. Actually, there's not a Saquon Barkley or an Ezekiel Elliott in this, in this draft class. And even still, you know, it's not like Saquon has turned the giants into contenders overnight. So I think we learned a lesson from the 49ers this year that there is positional value at running back. Um, so it, that's a spot that'll be very interesting to watch over the next coming weeks, whether they decide Devontae does fit with this offense and, and decide to keep him around or, you know, decide to save a little bit of cap space and, and try elsewhere remains to be seen, but it'll be fun. Uh, running back is always a fun position when there's stuff to discuss. Yeah, and I'm excited to see what they do. Um, well, this is uh, an exciting time. We get to see the Falcons uh, fix some stuff. Um, before we get out of here, is there anything uh, that we should be looking out from the Falcons, from your work? Um, what are we What are we thinking? Are you going to get a Thomas Dimitrov ride-along like he did with somebody else <laughs> recently that I watched? Um, one of my roommates has actually seen him at Jinya, and they've had conversations yeah. apparently. So well, there you go. Seems like a very nice guy. Um, <laughs> 10 out of 10 hair. Glasses game on point, style on point. Yep. Uh, so Always look sharp. There, Thomas. Yeah. Uh, you love to see it. Um, so, what should we check out from you this week and going forward? Yeah. So, we will be heading to uh, Indianapolis, not this week, but uh, on Monday. So, we'll be there all week long. Um, I believe Thomas and Dan will speak on Tuesday. So, we'll obviously have coverage of all of that on AtlantaFalcons.com. We'll have some videos, we'll, we'll write several pieces. It's probably, I would expect if we're going to start getting some answers, you know, maybe next week, the combine, 
Um, so certainly be tuned to, to AtlantaFalcons.com for that. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Will McFadden. Uh, try to keep you abreast of all, all the news going on. But that's it. I mean, our draft coverage, we are really – we all love draft season. Uh, it gives us a chance to, to kind of look at some new players, speculate a little bit, uh, as I'm sure all fans do. It's, it's a lot of time for hope. It's a lot of time for optimism, get to, some, get to know some new guys. Uh, so, yeah, just keep checking out AtlantaFalcons.com. Keep checking out our social channels. Uh, you know, our Twitter team is great. Um, our video team is great. We're going to be turning out some great content. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that, that's all I would say is keep checking us out. Go do that. Keep up the great work, Will, and uh, we will definitely have to do this again very soon. Thanks so much, Chase. Anytime. All right. That'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. Thank you uh, to the wonderful guests for coming on today's show. Thank you uh, to my wonderful listeners for listening to today's episode. Uh, I greatly appreciate it. Um, If you like today's episode, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple. It would be great. Um, it helps the show continue to grow and I would very much appreciate it. Uh, you can also support the show on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash chase Thomas writer. Um, for as little as $5 a month, it helps the show keep the lights on. So that would be a great help to me as well. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at chase double underscore Thomas. You could go to chase Thomas podcast.com, which has all of my stuff, all my episodes ever, um, links to everything that you need. Um, and all of my writing that uh, I'm doing fairly often these days um, on the NFL, on NBA, on college football, on pro wrestling. I write about everything. I write a lot. Um, So go read me on that front. So if you're not tired of listening to me, you can also read me. Um, So that's awesome. But uh, I think that's enough self-promotion from me for one episode. Uh, I hope you continue listening. That would be great. And uh, I will talk to you all again very soon. Thanks, guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.